Open up your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to talk today about God's Word, the rock of our worldview. God's Word, the rock of our worldview. Open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You know, he had an English accent and he sounded so smart, right? And I didn't have to be rude to show the folly of the thinking. All I had to do was ask him where he came from. That was a simple question. Listen, if the belief you have, if the worldview you have doesn't answer the question where you came from, how is it going to tell you what to do where you're at? If you can't get an answer to how you got here, how are you going to know what to do now that you're here? And so welcome to our worldview series where we're learning about how we see or view the world. Every one of us has glasses that we put on and that we see the world. So here you have this very smart, intelligent Englishman who was polite enough to stop and talk to us. Once again, look at our discussions as an example for you to have with your friends and family on your jobs, in your community, at your barbecues. This should be an example to how you can have agreeable or disagreements. Uh, I should say, nice, disagreeable conversations. So I asked him, where did you come from? He said, from his mom and backed it all the way up. And then the, the real question is, well, where did all of that come from? And then he says, I don't know. I don't know. And so I said, well, could it come from nothing? And then you heard him, I don't know. And see, he thought that he was being reasonable and that I was the one believing in the tooth fairy using faith. But I showed him, I said, brother, I haven't even got to Jesus splitting the red, or uh, Moses by God's grace splitting the Red Sea. I haven't even got to Jesus walking on water. I'm just asking you to use your own mind, your rational mind. You have no explanation of how you even got here, let alone why you're here or what you're supposed to do. You see, the Bible talks about the foolishness of those who disbelieve in God. Now, we don't call them fools in the sense of making fun of them. We're not here to put them down. He was very kind to do that. And how many noticed that I was kind to him as well? Did you guys notice that? So I didn't have to be rude, but did you notice that it was really simple to show that his worldview had no foundation, nor did it answer the big questions of life? Did you guys notice that? Amen. So go with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Here's an important verse in our worldview sermon series. Paul is talking here and he says, for though we live in the world, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So we're not here to fight a worldview war. We're not here to make the world Christians by force. We've talked about that in prior generations. That's how they forced their worldview. The Aztecs, the Mayans, the Incas, the Chinese dynasties, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, they fought their worldview war with swords. We don't do that. We do it just like that. Now, how many know if the gentleman listened to what I was saying to him, how many know he just lost that war? If he was listening, how many knows he lost the war? The war of the worldview. Where do you come from? I don't know. Well, God says he, he made you. What do you have to say about that? Well, that's just faith. I don't know anymore. Well, I gave you an answer. Two plus two is four. You can say, well, that's just by faith. I don't know. Well, I gave you an answer. Giving people the biblical answer, my friends, is an answer. You can't have any other answer other than the Bible answer. Now, we will talk about other religions and how they now try to say, oh, oh, call on me. Pick me. Pick me. I have an 
an answer. It's my God. My God is the answer. Well, then what do we do? We do just like what Elijah did with the prophets. We go God to God. Claim of divinity versus claim to divinity. Head to head. Book with the book. And we show them every single time that the Bible and the God of the Bible is the only God. There isn't many gods. There isn't different versions of the one God. There is only one God. And I will show you how to do that with religious beliefs after we get through some of these foundational beliefs. So though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Do you and I have weapons? Yes. Why do we have weapons? Why do we have weapons? To demolish strongholds. But look at the passage, verse 4. Why does it say we have weapons? To do what? To fight. Everybody say fight. The weapons we fight with. Do you have weapons to fight with? Come on. Do you have weapons to fight with? Yes, you do. So you have weapons. You are in a fight. If you think right now you are not in a fight, it's because you've already been knocked out, defeated in the fight. If you think that you're not in a battle of worldviews, it's because you have already been brainwashed to believe somebody else's worldview. If you are a Christian, you are now aware that there are other worldviews against your worldview. You now know that you are swimming upstream to the spirit of this age. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Ephesians chapter 2 teaches us that we are fighting the spiritual battles, as Ephesians 6 says. But look at how Ephesians 2 says how we're fighting it, the kingdom, the ruler of this era. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Is he, the, uh, is he just the sorry guy of the kingdom of the air? Is he the powerless kingdom of the air? No, what is he in the kingdom of the air? The ruler. So the devil is the what? The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. How many of you have noticed there is a spirit of disobedience in our culture? You guys understand that, right? Where does that spirit of disobedience come from? The ruler of the air. Now go to Ephesians chapter 6 and explain, it explains to you the different ways you will fight these rulers, these principalities, these strongholds of the air. Look at it. Put on the full armor of God. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the what? The rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So I want you to go back and look at the passage. Do you have weapons, yes or no? So how are you doing with them? Are you winning? Are you winning the worldview war? Are you showing the world that your weapons win the war? Or are you being defeated, and are they walking away going, oh, those Christians don't know what they're talking about? How many know after I got done talking to that individual, his name's Andrew, but how many know after I got done talking to Andrew, he knew my weapon crushed his worldview? It's up to him whether or not he humbles himself and receives it, but he was backed into the corner of I don't know. It was over. If there was a referee in the fight, they would have said, fight is over. He can't defend himself anymore. He's just taking the punches. Are we supposed to then force our worldview on them? No. 
but he knew for a fact that the fight was over. There was nothing more to him to bring up. All he could do, and what you'll see generally in times like this, is they'll start calling names. Well, you Christians are just like this. Or they'll change the subject and say, well, what about when you Christians did all of this in history? Or what about this part of your Bible that we don't like? But what they're admitting is they have no view that can stand against your view. And so the weapons we fight with, we have weapons, we fight with them, are not the weapons of the world. Because how many know I could have beat him up but never changed his mind? How many know I could have put him in jail but never changed his mind? And that was the wrong when the Roman Catholic Church did what it did, not only against Jews, not only against Muslims, but it did it against Protestants, Protestants like us, burned us at the stake, took away our freedoms, put us in pits to torture us as heretics because they couldn't change our mind. So we resist religious we resist religious oppression just as much as we do uh, governmental oppression. And right now, I want to always make you aware to pray for China, one of the largest nations in the world where Christianity is growing, probably upwards of 60 million Christians. They are being severely persecuted right now by the dictator. So please keep them in prayer. So when we talk about the weapons we're fighting with, look at what it says. On the contrary, our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6 and see what is our weapon that demolishes strongholds. It says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? Come on, the Word of God. So what is the sword of the Spirit? The Word of God. So the Word of God defeats and demolishes arguments. The Word of God defeats and demolishes the things that we're dealing with in our culture because without the Word of God, you can know nothing. And I'll show you in just a few moments what I mean by that. We demolish arguments. What do we do with arguments? Come on, what do we do with them? Demolish them. We demolish arguments. Thank you. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So they're the one asking for the fight. Instead of them submitting to God, they're rebelling against God. Once again, we're not fighting with physical weapons, but we didn't start the fight, but we're going to finish it as Christians. It started with the devil, and then Adam and Eve, and then now throughout humanity. And so those of us who have repented, what have we really did? We have said we're sorry to our God and King, the general of the armies of heaven, and said we're, we're tired of fighting against you. How many of you fought against God in your mind before you became a Christian? How many of you resisted God in your mind? You made up your arguments. You had your propositions, your pretensions. You had these arguments against God and his will for your life, and you didn't submit to him. All of us had been there, the Bible says. When we go to Ephesians 2, it says all of us were there. Look at Ephesians 2 again. All of us used to live this way when we followed the ways of the world. Do the ways of the world have arguments pro-homosexuality? Oh, yes, they do. They got a lot of arguments to support homosexuality, the LGBT movement. Did you believe some of those when you were in the world? 
When you were in the world, did you believe that pornography was harmless and it was just a part of everyday life, not a problem? When you were in the world, did you believe that your money belonged to yourself because you were a self-made man or woman that deserved to keep it all? You didn't have to give it away if you didn't want to. Did you fall for the lies of the world to believe that you got to pick whatever you wanted to do in life and that if that didn't make you happy, you could blame God or the Creator and say, well, I tried this and tried that and it didn't make me happy? Did you live a selfish, self-centered life based on your own whims? Bible says selfish ambition is a sin. You're supposed to ask God your creator what he created you for. God said that the love of money is a sin. You were supposed to use your resources for God. Bible says sexuality was created for his purpose. You were supposed to use that for God. All of us can relate to this because we were under the power of the spirit of the air just like everybody else. But look at what Paul says. When they set up these arguments, we demolish them. When they put up these pretensions, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So going back to that, that video, what did I do with his thoughts about nothingness? I took that little thought and I said, you come here, you little thought of nothingness. You will be obedient to Christ. I will demolish you in front of him. Now it's up to him what he does. It's up to him what he does. But I took captive that thought. And not only here do we do it on behalf of others in our discussions, but we do it for ourselves. How many of you had to take captive a thought about sleeping in this morning and make it obedient to Christ to come to church? How many of you had to take captive a thought last week to stay home instead of go to life group or meet with your discipler? How many of you in marriages have had to take thoughts captive that would start a fight or an argument with your spouse and just say, ah, that's not worth it. That's, this is not going to end well for me. I may be right, but it's going to feel wrong in the end. Are you listening? How many of you had to take thoughts captive? How many of you were tempted this week and you took thoughts captive? So guess what? You're still in a battle of worldviews too, aren't you? Have you ever met a Christian that says all the right things but they act wrong? You know what happened is they changed their worldview. Because instead of looking at the grace of God going, oh, the grace of God is there for when I fall as I'm living in perf the perfect will of God. Instead of seeing the grace of God that way, they go, oh, man, you mean whenever I sin, God will just keep forgiving me? Well, sounds like sinning's what I'm going to do now. See, what did they do? They traded the worldview of God's grace and the Scripture, which is not just forgiveness, but it's power in your hour of need to overcome temptation and to live holy. They swapped that for greasy grace, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Have you ever met a Christian that, that didn't honor their spouse or didn't have a godly home and didn't keep their family in order? You know what they did? They said, well, that church stuff doesn't need to be in my house. We go to church on Sunday. My kids get enough there. I'll put on the ball game every night instead of devotions. What have they done? They have swapped out their worldview. Maybe you're a college student, right? Oh, man, I'm so busy. I don't need to read my Bible. I just need to do my homework. Well, you're so smart, college student. Where'd your brain come from? Why don't you tell me that? You're going to use your brain. You're going to use your brain. You don't, you don't need God. You're so busy because you got a brain. Where'd your brain come from, smarty pants? You ever try using, uh, using your body without a brain? Let's honor the God who gave us a brain. You're not too busy for God, college student. You're not too busy for God, married couple. 
Are you listening? The Bible says, do all things unto God. We demolish our own arguments. Not only can we be deceived from the outside coming in, we can deceive ourselves from the inside. We can have our own desires go counter to what God is telling us. So my friends, as we're going through this worldview series, see the big picture here. You're supposed to have the right worldview in all that you do, not just in your arguments with atheists or Muslims or Mormons or the Jehovah Witness who knocks on your door or the lesbian. You're not just supposed to be looking at it like that. You're also supposed to be making sure you're fighting the battle of your own mind as well, that you're renewing your own mind, taking those thoughts captive so you can live a blessed life, have a blessed family, a blessed home, and be at peace. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Just to remind everybody, your worldview is how you see the world. And it's an explanation of why you believe what you believe. When we look at the Christian worldview, we make this chart. I made this chart to help us all have a foundation of our beliefs. The Christian worldview has an axiom, a starting place, God's Word. Somebody say God's Word. Thank you. From God's Word, we make presuppositions. That means we can't prove them unless we have an axiom that makes sense of them. And now give this thought to your neighbor who says, well, I don't have any presuppositions. Ask them, how do you even know you exist? Once again, these are the questions that they're already presupposing. And if they go, well, that just is what it is, we'll say, no, really, how do you know? You could be a brain in a vat. You could be some scientist experiment right now. You could be in the matrix. Or if they don't buy that or you get tired of saying the brain in the vat one, just ask them this. How do you know there's other minds in the bodies you're talking to? We all could have been body snatched last night. We all could be walking zombies. How do you know I have a mind? Are you going to dissect me and find it and then dissect her and find it. No, we presuppose. We come into the world with presuppositions, otherwise we couldn't make sense of it. So the biblical presuppositions is that God is triune. When we read in our scriptures, it talks about in the beginning, God said, let us, plurality. And by the time we get to Jesus, we see that the, that the God we've been worshiping is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our other presupposition is that God created the world. Evolution is a mindless uh, mechanism that didn't have any design or any purpose, and it would have come from nothing because it had to have uh, an origin, and if there is no God, it would have come from nothing. And like I've tried to say to this gentleman, there's people who call nothing gravity and force and vacuums, etc., and dark matter and all of these black holes. Maybe we came from a black hole. But these are make-believe for adults. Those beliefs are make-believe for adults. Did you know adults still play make-believe? They do. They still play make-believe. If you don't believe me, just watch somebody uh, as they watch their favorite team. They actually think what they say to that TV is going to affect that player. Make-believe for adults. Oh, yeah. There's make-believe for adults. And adults sometimes believe they came from the goo through the zoo to you, but that's not true. We believe in creation. Number three, we believe that there's an answer for evil, and that's because humanity is sinful since our fall. So as I told you before, there was a man who gave up his faith at 9-11 because he said, how could God let so many innocent and people die. He hasn't read our Bible. Our Bible tells us why innocent people die. A lot of people have turned their back on God over the years, and God has judged this world. And I'm not saying that every innocent person deserves to die in the way they've died, but every innocent, per, every person we claim is innocent is still part of Adam and Eve and the fall. And if God wasn't merciful to us, we would all die and go to hell. So the question isn't why does bad happen to good people. The, the question is why does good thing happen to anybody at all? Because there is no good people. Can I get Amen. 
We're all born sinners. We all deserve it in one way or another. Once again, God is going to judge the wicked, though. Number four, Jesus is God in the flesh. When we go man to book or book to man and we start comparing religion to religion, Jesus stands out among all of them. The next thing that we have as a presupposition is that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And that comes because God is gracious and that we can never earn our salvation. So when you're talking to other religions, that's going to become very important as we start to compare our worldview to them. And then lastly, God will judge the world. How many believe in a final judgment? Amen. The next thing that we know in certain terms is the presuppositions that we make from the Bible. If the Bible doesn't say it, we can't prove it, therefore we can't be certain of it. And then everything else is our best guess. Everybody say our best guess. Now, you can look up at the screen and cheat if you want, but I just want to see if you've been paying attention. What does science fall under? Best guess. Shout it out. What does science fall under? Best guess. What does our experience fall under? Best guess. Now, I want to get real deep, and then I'm going to get real practical. Somebody say, hold on. Hold on. We're going to get deep first. You see, science actually falls under best guess. You see, if you think to yourself, science has proven it, you actually don't understand what science is doing. If you then were to say your experience is better than the Bible, you don't understand what your experience is. Let me just help you realize these two things briefly, and then I'll go deeper. When we're doing science, what do we have to presuppose to do science? Number one, that we're a good scientist. That when I look at the numbers, I'm actually reading the numbers correct. How can I prove that I'm looking at those numbers correct? I have to have an axiom that I'm actually in the real world and not of that. Therefore, when I'm looking as a scientist at scientific discoveries, I'm already presupposing all of these things. Now, when I look at those dials, let's say when water boils, and we say it's 212, how do I know that the dial is set correctly? How do I know that it's not 211.9999999 like pi, and then somewhere is the breaking point? So we've rounded up to 2012, but do I know exactly between 2011 and 2012 where water boils? I don't. I make the best guess. Every single scientific discovery is based on those principles. The plane, the, the astronauts going to space, all that we do here is based on those best guesses. Now, your experience, you may say to yourself, Joe, I can show you things that I experience every day and they never change. I get up in the morning and I look at myself in the mirror and I look like myself, so I am myself. But how do you know that you're yourself? Does your experience validate yourself? No, tomorrow you might look up, wake up tomorrow and find out you're an X-man that can shapeshift. How do you know you're not an, an X-man that can shapeshift? Maybe you drank some, uh, some nuclear waste yesterday in Chicago's tap water, and tomorrow you wake up. See, you have no evidence for the future because the future doesn't exist, and then you have no way of grounding how your experience is truly your experience. You could be a puppet in a scientist's laboratory. Like I said, it's going to get a little bit more deeper, but I want you to hang on, and then we'll get to some things that I think you'll really like. When we look at the sand of experience and the sand of science, these are the things that we have to understand. And I'm going to read this because I don't want to get too deep where you guys can't follow me. Somebody say science. Thank you. Science is based on the inductive method, reasoning from the specific to the general. Let me give you an example. You have a bag of marbles. The bag of marbles is something you put your hand into. You pull one marble out of the bag of marbles, you have a red marble. You put your hand in again, you get another red marble. You put your hand in again, you get another red marble. If you do that 100 times, what is going to be your best guess on the 101st time of the color of the marble you're going to pull out? What do you guess it's going to be? 
It's going to be red. You have no evidence of that because you can't look at the bag of marbles on the inside. All you can do is go upon your past experiences. That's what science is based on. We don't know that the world will be as the world is. That's why they made a statement in Latin that says all things being equal, all things remaining the same. We have to put that statement in there because we don't know if all things will remain the same. That's the inductive method. It was invented by Christians. Did you know that? The inductive method, science itself, was invented by Christians to discover the natural world that God designed and created. Francis Bacon, the founder of the inductive method, look at what he wrote. God has placed no limits to the exercise of the intellect he has given us on this side of the grave. In other words, he understood that it was a limitless endeavor to understand the world because God in his limitless nature had created it. Go get the board and a marker for me, please, and I'll show you the circle of knowledge by Einstein as well. This limitless knowledge is based in a person, a designer. And Francis Bacon took on science to say, let us now discover the mind of God. Some people think we're reasoning to God. We're going to use our reasoning like a ladder and climb up and talk to God. That's not how the Christian scientists looked at it. They looked at it as we are reasoning from God. Reasoning from God. Where did reason come from, my friends? Who did it come from? Thank you. Can you push it all the way back here, good sir? Reason came from who? So can I reason to God? No, because who gave me the reasoning? Okay, who gave me my reasoning? Y'all quiet. Who gave me my reasoning? Thank you. This is the circle of knowledge. Let's say this is God's infinite wisdom, which I couldn't make a circle big enough, but let's say that's God's infinite wisdom. If I begin to do science and I discover this much, this is now what I do know. What I don't know is the circumference of that circle. Watch what happens. If I begin to know more in this circle, what begins to happen to what I don't know? No? Y'all got to follow. Who said more? Okay, I'm going to say it again. If this is the circle of knowledge, everything that can be possibly known, and this is all that I know, this is now all that I don't know, the circumference around it. The more I know, though, the more I know, I'm awesome at learning what also grows with me. The more I what? The more I don't know. That's why it's infinite. Do you know that right now at the study that I'm at, I have over 400 books on my Kindle, 1,700 on a Bible program, 500 in my house, and right now I have more unanswered questions than I've ever had in my entire life. Y'all better understand how deep this gets. You think you're going to figure out God? Because you got a laboratory and a little microscope, the more you expand this, this is Einstein, the more you expand what you know, you will only result with more you don't know. Now, it's, we're thankful that what we do know is beneficial to our world, and it gets passed around. That's great that now we know things about children, and children live longer, that infant death syndrome is less, but they had to flip the babies around a couple times, have them sleep on their stomach, and then they told them, now sleep on their back. So they're trying to figure it out, but the more we know about it, the more our children live. Better about vaccines and those kinds of things. Let's not be weirdy about vaccines right now, but you see, that's the circle of knowledge. Sir Isaac Newton, the father of physics and the inventor of calculus, wrote this. Look at what he wrote. I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as the Word of God written by those who inspired it. I study the Bible daily. Every college student look up at me. 
Do you guys think you're smarter than the founder of physics and calculus? Do you think you're smarter than him? Guess what he said he studied daily? What did he study daily, folks? Why do you think he did that? Because he understood the foundation of his worldview was based in God's view. He understood that he needed to see it God's way before he could ever go into a laboratory. Is it any wonder that now we have all of these scientists in the laboratory but without the, wrong, uh, without the right view, worldview? Therefore, what they're coming up with isn't making sense to our better living. We now know inside the womb that's a baby, but we're killing them more than we ever have before. We now know more than ever before the genetics of what makes a man or a woman, but now we're trying to cut off working parts and make a Frankenstein. We're now doing things that is idiotic according to any other generation, but yet we're the smartest we've ever been. It's because the more we gained our knowledge in, in this sense, the more prideful we became. So you have to have a morality, a truth factor working with the facts that you're getting. Otherwise, you come into folly. So you can be smart and dumb at the same time. You can be smart with facts, but dumb in world life, a real life application. Therefore, science has never been about certainty, but rather the quest to always gain more knowledge and make educated guesses about the universe. Now, I want to show you this from a theoretical scientist. Can you please move this for me, my brother? Carlo, v v Carlo Rovelli confesses that science is not about certainty and that nothing is scientifically proven. This is from the article that I have linked right here. What does he write? This is a non-Christian. This is an atheist talking about scientists, a science. He says, science is not about what? Certainty. So do you try to prove things with certainty through science? You better not because you can't have certainty. Have you met people that think because science proves it, it means it's true? Have you met smart people that say that? They say it all the time. Well, science proves it. Look at what he writes right here. The very expression, scientifically proven, is a contradiction in terms. There's nothing that is scientifically proven. Why do you think the smartest scientists in the world understand nothing is scientifically proven? Because the core of science is the deep awareness that we have wrong ideas, we have prejudices. We don't know what we don't know, my friends. The only way science is appropriate is look at what it says. It's appropriate. It's the most credible we found thus far, and it's mostly correct. So your car is mostly correct in combustion. The airplane is mostly correct in lift. What you do in all of your endeavors is mostly correct. Does it work? Yes. But it's not about reliability because you have no basis to base your reliability on. Let me explain that a little bit further. If you say I have something that's scientifically proven, you run into the problem of induction. David Hume and Bertrand Russell were both atheists who came up with the problem that helps us as Christians rock their worldview. You know why? Because God gave them enough sense to understand it. This was the problem of induction, the problem of science. Look at Hume's argument. It's one of the most famous in philosophy. A number of philosophers have attempted solutions to the problem, but a significant number have embraced his conclusion that it's insolvable. There is also a wide spectrum of opinion of the significance of the problem. Let's go right down here to the end. Bertrand Russell, for example, expressed that if Hume's problem cannot be solved, there is no intellectual difference between sanity and insanity. Why is it you think the smartest philosophers in science said, at the end of the day, we can't really tell you a difference between sanity and insanity? Because they can't get over the problem, whether or not they even exist, whether or not they're a brain in a vat, whether or not the experiments they're doing are going to work in the next second. Everything literally they're doing in science is based upon guesses.
They are trying to play Jenga skydiving. Y'all need to think about that. Can you play Jenga while you're skydiving? They do a lot of things while they're skydiving, don't they? But can you play Jenga? Can you lay cement foundation while you're skydiving? What is the world doing right now? They're skydiving, and they're trying to show you what they know. But they have absolutely zero foundation. Now, do we have evidence that we exist? Yes, we do. Where does that evidence come from? God, not science. Not science. Do we know why science works most of the time? Yeah, do we get that from science? No, we get that from God. Do we have an awareness of other people, their souls, they're alive, they're actually with us in the real world? Yep, I have an awareness that you're a real person. Do I get that from science? Listen, I want you to understand, that's what they did to the Jews. The Germans were some of the most smartest people at that time, and they said they do not have souls. That's what the slave traders did. They do not have souls. You see, right now, we could get into a lot of trouble. We start denying people have souls. Because how do I prove your soul in science? I eat an animal. Why not eat you? What's the difference? All I see is pain and nerve cells. You know, nerve cells. Well, a cow has nerve cells. It's a mammal. You're a mammal. What's the difference? Well, I see your brain lights up when I poke you. His brain lights up when I poke him. Are you listening? He doesn't like it when you poke him. So what's the difference between you as this kind of a mammal and that kind of a mammal? Never find it through science. You'll never discover it through science. Who tells us there's a difference between us and that animal? God. Therefore, science and personal experience cannot be our foundation in life. We need a rock, a firm foundation. Somebody say a rock. God's word. If someone would claim they have logic without God's word, we can simply share with them that without the word logos, you can't even have the word logic, which is log- logos is the word for our God. Now, here's some arguments. Let me go through them quickly, and then I'm going to make it applicable. The argument against the reliability of science. Test this out. Give it to your professor and see if they can disprove it. Number one, for science to prove anything, scientists must be certain about the future. It is impossible for scientists to be certain about the future. Therefore, scientists cannot prove anything with certainty, only best guesses. So what is science? What is science, y'all? Best guess. Because we don't know what the future holds. We don't know, even in the present, what's holding the things the way they are. How do we know gravity will be this way right now in 30 seconds when I do that test again? I don't know. I'm just making guesses. But guess what? People say, I don't believe in science. I don't believe in God. I believe in science. What do I say back to them? I believe in God because I believe in science. You all better learn some of these one-liners. They work. I don't believe in God. I believe in science. Man, that's dumb. I believe in God because I believe in science. It makes sense. Here's the argument for God from science. Did you ever think you would learn about an argument to prove God's existence from science in church? Here you go. If God exists, the natural world will show design and be discoverable. It won't be a mystery as we start to get the machines to look deeper into our world. We'll actually see design. We'll see it's discoverable. Number two, the natural world does operate on laws that are discoverable and proven design. How many know the more we go with the microscope, the more design we see and more laws we see in motion? How many know the bigger we get with the telescope, the more design we see and the more laws we see in motion? Where did they come from? Where did design and laws come from? Designer, God, and lawgiver, God. Show me design and anything else. 
that doesn't have a creator. What's the difference between the rocks around Mount Rushmore and the faces where Mount Rushmore is on the rocks? What's the difference? A design. What's the difference between a blob of clay laying in the ground as mud and some beautiful sculpture like the David? What's the difference? Okay, so if we look at computers and infer design, what are we supposed to do when we look at you? You're supposed to infer design. When you look at the molecular structure, when you look at quantum physics and all these big things that they're doing in science, what are we supposed to infer? That God designed it. Otherwise, why does it make sense to us? If we were just a physical machine with a, a head full of jello, why would we understand the world around us? Do you think a grapefruit understands the world around it? But if all you are is a head full of grapefruit juice and chemicals, why do you understand your world? Why can you make predictions based on science that are pretty reliable? Why can we actually travel to the moon based on those things? Because God exists. Now, when we get to logic, everybody likes to say, well, you know what? I use science and I use logic. As I've showed you before, but I want you to get here, the Greek word is helpful for us because it actually shows where the Greek word logic came from. It came from the Greek word what? Logos or logos. That's where we get the word logic from. And the word logic means reasoning or the art of reasoning. We believe in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In the beginning was the mind of God through reason. Paul, excuse me, John purposely used that word, word, logos, to mess with the Greek philosophers. He wanted to show them, hey guys, you believe in logic? You believe in that? I know where it comes from. It comes from Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning through Him. How many things were made? How many things? So everything we see was made through the logic of God, the Son of God. Is it any wonder that all things that are made bear the signature of a design? No, because the designer left his signature upon all that he created. Look at Romans chapter 1. This is why the Bible says even if we don't reach the jungles and give them the name of Jesus, they will be without excuse because they can at least call on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and remove themselves from idolatry because they will know by creation the very nature of God. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So why, do somebody, why does somebody in the jungle worship their ancestor? They worship their ancestors the same way a Cubs fan worships the Cubs. They purposely put something in front of them in their own image that they want to make their God. They are without excuse. They know, looking around at the world, that their ancestor did not make this world. They know by looking at the laws of nature that they themselves apply as they hunt and gather. They know that the nature of God is not the tree they made the idol out of. Are you listening? So there will be no one that comes before God and says, well, I was just in the Aztec Empire and was, you know, taught to believe this man was God. No, you'll be held accountable, even in those generations. 
because our missionaries have gone to those people groups, and they discovered that there was truth among them, at least to know this. God is a spirit. He is not like us, and he asks us to live a moral life. Those people will be judged based on their conscience. But then I always say back to the sassy person that asked me, what about those in the jungle I've never heard? I say, but you're not one of them. You're hearing right now. Can I hear an amen? So we see that logic even comes from God. Just as the origin of the word logic is dependent upon the word logos, all forms of logic are dependent upon Jesus, the living word. Jesus himself said, now understand this as I read John 14, 6. John starts the Bible, his gospel, right at the beginning with Jesus being God. All of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's always the story of the manger, the virgin Mary. Why does John start with Jesus, boom, right in heaven? This is who I'm talking about. It's because he knows the historical life of Jesus has already been given. He now writes his gospel. It's the last gospel written in history about 40 years after the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He writes his to show you the Jesus that is God of heaven and earth. So he starts off at the very beginning. He doesn't say, away in a manger. No, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And then the word made himself flesh. And we've never seen God the Father, but we've seen God the Son. He came full of grace and truth. That's chapter 1. By the time he gets to John chapter 14, Jesus is on a roll showing people who he is. So when Jesus makes this statement, there can be no way to misunderstand what John is saying Jesus believed. Or thought about himself. That's why C.S. Lewis said either Jesus is a lunatic out of his mind, a full-on liar, or he is the Lord of glory. Because you don't make statements like this unless they're true. Either you're a lunatic or a liar. Are you listening? It's either you're out your mind talking crazy or you're full-on lying. But there's no way you can just be a good man. You have to be the God man to make these statements. Because a good man would not walk around being lying to others and be a lunatic. Jesus says this, I am the way. He doesn't say, I have a way to give you. He literally says, I am ontologically the way. That means for us to go from heaven to earth, we will pass through Jesus like they pass through a gate on Stargate to go from one world to another. He is the only spiritual connection for us mere humans on earth to have a connection with the divine. He's not giving a way. He is literally the way. Literally, literally. I know he says I'm the door and and all of these other things. Some of those are examples of of parabolic language. But when he is talking here, this is not parabolic language. He is describing who he is. See it like this today. See it as what he meant to say. Somebody say Jesus is the way. The next thing is he says, I am the truth. Now notice this. He doesn't say, I'm giving you truth. He doesn't say, like, I got some true things to tell you. He is telling you, I am the embodiment of everything that is true. All science is done from the mind of God. For a scientist to do science, he must connect to the mind of God. Do you guys get that? What do you do on your job? Shout it out, one, two, three. Say somebody teaches, if you ever teach truth, you're doing it from the Word of God. You paint. Anything that looks good in art, it comes from the Word of God. It comes from Jesus himself. What else do you do? One, two, three, shout it out. You sell stuff. Anything that benefits another person in commerce comes from the will of God. Every single thing that is true comes from him. Why? Look back at John 1. Don't forget John 1 when you're in John 14. It says, through him all things were made. 
Painting and art and beauty was made through God. Commerce, buying and selling, the beauty of that made through God. Engineering, things working, made through God. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Then he says, I am the life. There is literally no possibility to have life without God. Even if somebody says, what if they create life in a laboratory? That's great. What does that prove? It takes a creator to make life in a laboratory. But here, you want to be real smart? How about this? Create your own laboratory. Create your own stuff that you're messing with in the laboratory, and then create yourself, and then talk to me. Manipulating what God has given you in a laboratory, if they ever do, and they keep trying to do it, I don't think will ever be done, but it will never disprove God because you have to start with nothing and go to something to be like God. Where'd you get the laboratory from? You did these chemicals and had this experiment. Where'd you get those chemicals from? Try making those from nothing. That's what we're talking about, God. Without him, there would be no life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So you guys want to see the arguments uh, for God? But here we have to tear down their worldview. If materialism is true, logic does not exist. How many know what materialism is? Raise your hand if you know what it is. Okay, most of you don't. Materialism is the belief that all that the world is is material. There's no spiritual things. Okay, what is, what is logic, material or spiritual? It has to be spiritual. Can you paint it yellow and sell it for $1.99 at Jewel? Go get me the law of non-contradiction. Go get me logic. Go get me reason. Where is it at? Where is it found? Where do I buy it at, right? You can't go get it, but we all understand it. We all understand. How many understand this statement? I cannot be a married bachelor. How many understand that statement? Where is it at? How did I communicate it to you? How did your bag of cantaloupe understand it inside your brain? How did you understand that? But how many know bachelors are single? How many know married people have spouses? But how many understand this statement? Thursday smells like green much. It's nonsense. It's not, but, but why did you know the difference between nonsense and bananas are yellow? Why do you know the statement bananas are yellow makes sense, but orange smells like Tuesday much? Makes no sense. How do you know that? Where's that at, guys? Where do we find that? Did that come from the goo? Where's that in a chemical? I want to see where we went from not understanding things to understanding things. You think science can prove that? Never. So guess what? The very thing they're trying to use to disprove your God proves our God. I don't believe in God. I just believe whatever is, is. Okay, do you believe in logic? Yeah. Now show me that is what it is. Uh, well, uh, I think about it. Yeah, show me your thought then. I'm not talking about a brain scan, your brain lighting up when you think. Show me your thoughts. Show me that thought of logic that's true. And then we'll break it down into morality. Show me you're a human worth living. Why should I respect you? Why should I have a moral thought about you to treat you as I do myself? That's just a thought anyways. There's nothing written in the laws of nature that spell out in the stars. I can't kill and eat you today. That's just a thought. Why should I listen to that moral logic? Hello? How many know there's moral logic? How about, let me give you a phrase of moral logic. Human beings are made in the image of God. Number two, you don't eat human beings made in the image of God. Therefore, I will not eat you. How many are glad that logic works today? Okay, take out made in the image of God and tell me why we can't. Logically speaking, tell me why we can't. Humans taste good. I'm hungry and want something that tastes good. Therefore, I will eat you for lunch today because you taste good. Is that illogical? No. It's perfectly logical, but it's immoral. Why? Because morality has to ground our logic. 
And where did moral logic come from? It came from the mind of God. Somebody say, help us, Jesus. If material, materialism is true, then logic doesn't exist. If logic doesn't exist, this sentence has no meaning. If logic does not exist, this sentence has no meaning. But how many know the sentence has meaning? How many read that sentence and it had meaning? This sentence and many other sentences have meaning. Therefore, materialism is false. You understood the meaning of that, didn't you? Logic exists. Now, you want to know how to use logic to show God exists? You're right out the woods. Hang on, people. You're right out the woods. This is going to get practical in a minute, but I had to get deep a little bit. Argument from logic. If God exists, then logic exists in his mind and is thus immaterial. Is God made out of material things of matter, space, and time? Is logic made out of matter, space, and time? Oh, so now we have a reason why there's matter, space, and time created from a non-material being called God. And guess what? We also understand why there's immaterial things like logic now, don't we? We've just explained the universe and logic. God. God made matter, space, and time. And God has immaterial qualities like truth, like logic. Let's go to number two. Logic exists and is immaterial. Does logic exist? Is it immaterial? Therefore, God exists in the source of, and he's the source of all immaterial logic. Try to give me logic without God. As I've told you before, the only other explanation that people give us is what Plato came up with. Literally, thousands of years later, it's the same stupid lie of Plato. And Plato goes, I got a way around this. I got a way around this. All immaterial things exist in a world called the world of forms, and they've been there as long as the universe has been there. That's what they only can say now, is that there literally must be, like I said before, on Sesame Street, a word called logic walking around existing, and we in the world we live in connect to it. That's what Plato said. Now, do you believe in the word called logic existing? No, but I believe in the person of logic existing in Jesus Christ. So you have a choice. You can believe that sentences exist without any creator, or you can believe in a creator that makes all propositional knowledge true. Can I hear an amen for that? Would you come up here for me, please, Adam? Give yourselves a hand clap for going deep today. Come on. Y'all did it. Y'all did it. That wasn't too painful. How many are glad you came to church? Now look at your neighbor and say, that was just the introduction. Amen. Now, thankfully, my message is a lot shorter than my introductions. How many are ready for the foundation of God's word now? How many are ready to receive what God has to say? Look at what he said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 20, uh, 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these teachings of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose. The winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What are you going to base your life on today? What are you going to base all that you do on today? You see, they used to make fun of us because we said the Bible said such and such. And they say, oh, you're a book of fairy tales. But did I just demolish their arguments in front of you today? Did I do that, yes or no? Because I'll say, tell me what's your fairy tale then, because you got the real fairy tales. You believe you came from nothing. At least the magician has a hat. Are you listening? 
You don't have a magician or a hat, and abracadabra, here you are. That's the fairy tale. But what is the truth? What is the truth, y'all? God said, let there be light. God said. God said. And when we had sinned against him, the word came and made himself known among us. To just be deep, to just impress us with highfalutin terminology, no. The word became flesh so that he might die in the place of all of our foolishness, of all of our wrong living. Sin, in other words, put Jesus on that cross. But it was love that kept him there. Do you hear the words of God today in your marriage? If you do, build your, your marriage, your house upon his words. Do you hear the words of God today in your emotions? Build your emotional life on the word of God. Do you hear God's word today speaking to you, children, about obeying your parents and seeking first the kingdom of God? Then build your adulthood on the word of God. All of us as voters here today, do you hear what God says to government? Vote according to his word and build this nation on the word of God. Without the word of God, our lives will fall apart. How many people are in hell today because they didn't trust God with their life? What is sand made out of? What is sand made out of? Anybody smart in here knows what sand's made out of? It's made out of broken down rock, isn't it? Do you know that even the sinner owes his rebellion to a God who gave him a choice? So even if you build your life on sand, it's still because God gave you a choice. Some people think, I don't think it's fair that I even have to build a house. I don't want to build nothing. I don't want to build it on a rock. I don't want to build it on sand. I just don't want to be here. Well, here's one thing all of us know is true. We exist, and we can't change that we exist. Some people even think out of suicide, well, I'm going to end it all. I'm going to show God you can't control my existence. Did God ever say your soul only existed in a body? They find out real quick their soul exists outside of a body. You don't have a choice, friends. You must choose one or the other, but you don't have a choice to whether or not you're building. All of us is building something. What are you building your family on? What are you building your life on? Jesus, when he spoke words... He was giving you bricks. Come on, somebody. When I first got saved, and I knew that I was on that sand of life, and I first got saved, and I felt a brick of God's word, I can't even explain to you what it felt like to put it down as a foundation. I read through the book of Proverbs so many times. I filled up journal after journal after journal because everything I was hearing was like a brick. It was a piece of God's foundation for my life. And then I began to understand very quickly that even as a Christian, storms will come. Do you notice that both of the houses have storms? Because within a year, I was doing my first funeral. You know who it was for? My sister. 
Within a year of being a Christian, my first funeral as a new pastor after my first year of Bible college, they at least let me do things like funerals. It was for my sister. And I began to realize real quick, there's storms coming to everybody's house. Have you realized that? Just because you walked in these doors doesn't mean you don't have a storm in your life or you're not going to get another one. So I want to tell you something. You don't know what's coming your way today. Build your house on a rock. I talk to so many people who are in the storms of life and the water's rising and the winds are blowing and they don't realize how they got there. I'm not saying the storm's their fault, but they don't know why their foundation is so broken. It's because on the good days, the paydays, the days they didn't have cancer, they were too busy for church. Too busy. Too busy for God. I'm married now. But now that the wife is cheating, now that their job laid them off, the water's coming up eight foot high, and they're running out of space to hide, and they don't know why they got there. You know what the devil loves to do? He loves to come and just point out all the problems and just say, see, there's no God, otherwise this wouldn't have happened. But God was there the whole time. He was saying, build your life upon the rock. I wonder how many of us today, get this, come on, get this in closing, saints. It's worth it for me to go OT. Is it worth it for you to stay? Come on. I want you to get this today. You and I have no idea how many storms we've already been protected from by building our house on the rock. Woo! Sometimes you and I, we just got to thank God for the things we haven't even seen to know to thank Him for. Because I don't even know half the story, but I know these last 20 years, my life would have looked so different if it wasn't being built on these rocks one at a time with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I just wonder with so many of you here today, what the devil might have had planned for you, what storm he had to blow you over with. But by the grace of God, when that thing came, it just felt like the window shook a little bit. It didn't even do more than that. That water came, it just made a puddle in front of your house. But it would have destroyed you if you hadn't had the Word of God. I just wonder if there's anybody today that's thankful for what God has already kept you from. And I wonder if anybody here is going to talk to their children like Daryl with his daughters and say, listen, you don't got to go through the storms of life that I went through before I found Jesus. Build your life on God's words now. And I wonder if there's anybody that loves their neighbor enough, not loves their, their co-worker enough or their fellow student enough to sit down at a lunch table or to take them out for lunch after work or dinner or whatever and to say, hey, can I check your foundation with you? What's your worldview? What's your bottom line foundation? How do you know what you know is true? And then you preach the word to them. And I want to tell you this. Even if you don't know all the arguments, even if you can't remember one thing here because my mom didn't know all of this and I came to her table November 5th, 1995, high on drugs, needing help, and I tried to argue and argue. If all you know is this, you could say what my mom said. I know that Jesus is a firm foundation and if you build your life on his words, you will never fall. 
If all you can do is point to your Bible, they may make fun of you, but you just point to your Bible and say, hey, man, I don't understand all that. My pastor gets into that, and he'll put you on camera interviewing you to destroy your worldview. But this is what I understand is the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. He said it. I believe it. He's never let me down. If you could just point to that word and say, take it home, read it, give your life to understand it. It's lasted through the ages. Roman Empire tried to discredit it. Nations have tried to burn it. Other places have made it illegal and jailed us for it. But this Bible is the most popular book in the world. And it's the strongest foundation for all mankind. And we're going to end in prayer today. And I ask that you accept Jesus into your life if you haven't already. And if you have, you join with me and you make the word of God your foundation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for your word. Altar workers and band, would you come please? Oh God, I just want to get excited again. But I know there's some here that need to make a change of foundation before we shout and holler and get more excited. We need to slow down so that some can catch up. I pray that, Lord, every person hearing the sound of my voice makes a transitional movement from sand to rock because science won't help us in the end. Logic is meaningless without you, and you're our only hope today. You're the only hope for our souls. If you're not born again, would you ask Jesus to come into your life and to change your soul today? Come on, ask Jesus to save your soul. You're here for a reason. Jesus told you that reason. It was to be born again, to be in the kingdom of God. Believe it today. Build your house on it today. And now everyone here that's a Christian, would you think of three areas in your life right now that you need to put down a strong foundation Maybe you've already felt some wind come. Maybe you've ever already felt the waters rise in these areas of your life. But today you're going to put down the foundation of God's Word. Three areas of your life right now. Over your sexuality. Over your finances. Over your emotions. Lay down the bricks of God's Word. I'll keep you here all day with stories. But you need to get your own testimonies in those areas. few moments can change your lifetime. Put down some concrete and brick right now. Even if you don't know all the scriptures to your area, just make a commitment. Say, God, I'm going to read your word today. I'm going to go home and find some bricks as a foundation. I'll ask my 101 or I'll ask a pastor to get some scriptures because I believe. I believe. few moments, few moments. I wonder how many teenagers here are going to avoid the depression of this generation because they're laying down bricks over their emotions right now. I wonder how many adults right now are going to avoid divorce court because they're laying down bricks in their marriage. Keep praying. Come on as I pray for some of you. I wonder how many here are going to lay down the bricks over their finances. Few moments, few moments change a lifetime. Word of God. It's the Word of God. The same one who put the foundations of the earth here will put the foundations in your life. I'm going to pray just for a few of you right now. I can't pray for everybody, but at the end we'll dismiss. And if you need prayer, we'll pray for you individually. But David.